All right, well, welcome back. I know I, I said this last week, but tonight we will truly be wrapping up this lengthy study on the extent of the atonement. Now, real quick, as a side note before we get started, since I mentioned some things last week. Last week, we started into this final lesson, and we decided to end a bit early, which was for the best, because we would have gone way over time anyway. Uh, but I mentioned some, some announcements, and might as well give you some follow-up, since I mentioned these things last time. Angel on this kind of modified bed rest, doing really well. So things are okay with the pregnancy, just still this kind of take it easy, not really bed rest, just kind of take it easy rest. So, so far so good. Thankful for that. Also, I'm thankful I didn't get sick. The flu, it wasn't a flu. It just must have been some strange allergies. It's been kind of warm and windy a little bit anyway. And, you know, the sore throat hit me Wednesday, Thursday, but then thankfully it was gone by Sunday and wasn't the flu. So, so far so good still for me. I'm, I'm thankful. And then Noah had, this past Monday, had his little EKG or whatnot to check out his heart murmur. And thankfully they found it was, uh, he has a heart murmur, but it's called an innocent heart murmur or whatever they call it. Just meaning it's not a big deal. Something to be aware of for the future, but so far it's not a big deal. No, no further action is needed. So, so we're thankful. Just figured, since I mentioned all that last week, I might as well give you the, the part two of all that. So anyway... Things are good. We're thankful. Let's get into our study now. And the study is on the extent of the atonement here, really toward the tail end of this Doctrines of Grace study. And we're asking the question once again, for whom did Jesus die? We've been asking this question for quite some time. We've studied pretty extensively the position of Arminianism, which holds that Jesus died for all people without exception in the same way. Now we're studying the position of Calvinism which holds that Jesus died for the elect, for his people, the church. This view is known as limited atonement or definite atonement. And as we're studying that, the case for this definite atonement, the case stands on two legs, two strong legs. We spent an entire lesson covering the first of those, which really has to do with the Trinitarian plan of salvation, that Father, Son, and Spirit are united in their plan of redemption, and, and that plan is found to be for the church for a people that God has chosen. And the second leg, which we started into last week, if you have a handout, it's just repeated with some extra verses. It's really, it argues that limited atonement upholds an actual atonement, which is made clear by the the language of scripture itself, the particular language. When you look at the actual language and verses used, even verses that Arminians use to claim Jesus died for everyone without exception, you actually get down to look at these verses and the, the language used. Uh, time and time again, it supports a definite atonement, a particular redemption, not a universal or unlimited atonement. And so that's what we've been studying starting last week, just going through the verses. Just Let's not make broad, sweeping statements. Let's go verse by verse, study them one by one in their context, and see what they're teaching about the atonement and the extent of the atonement for whom did Jesus die So that's what we started doing last week. We're going to just pick up now from where we left off. That's the goal. I can't give too much more recap than that. So if you're just joining us rather new, that's why we're recording these. You can get caught up online. So for now, we we left off, I think, with Romans 8. So we'll resume with the next verse, 2 Corinthians 5. So you can grab a Bible and, and turn there now. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's the next passage on our list to, to go through. Just, that's what we're doing this evening. Just resume this, this Bible study. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5. As you're turning there, this is another big passage Arminians use because it has some universal language. Like verse 14, it says that one, Jesus, he died for all. It says Jesus died for all. And down in verse 19, it says God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So a couple of verses where it has very universal language. And uh, by a surface reading, one might assume that, well, this means all people without exception. But to the contrary, this is actually quite a large example of how the exact opposite is true. And when you actually read the passage and its context, even at a basic level, it's just a very clear passage, and it teaches a very definite and particular atonement. Now, that Paul is talking about here in this whole passage, he's talking about the church, about God's people, as those for whom God died. This is a passage really highlighting particular redemption, which is what we're arguing for. So look at verse 14. It says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. One died for all, therefore all died died. First, understand in this verse that everyone Jesus died for, they also died. You see that? Is that clear? One died for all, therefore all died. So everyone that's being spoken of here that Jesus died for, they died too. Now you're going to ask, you know, what does that mean? We commonly think of believers as those for whom Jesus died, but scripture also speaks of believers as those who died in Christ. That we have died in Christ as, as you come to salvation. This is Romans 6. That we died with Christ, meaning our old, our old selves were crucified with him. And at the same time, we've risen to new life, to new spiritual life. In Christ, with Christ. We are new creatures rising to newness of life. We've died and risen spiritually in Christ. Make sense? This fits verse 15. By the way, it says in the next verse, One died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So everyone Jesus died for, in verse 14, where it says he died for all, all those people, they died to sin, and they rose to new life. Do you understand the connection there? When you make that connection, which is very clear, though, Who are we really talking about when it says Jesus died for all? You have all these people, everyone for whom he died, it says they died to sin, sin, they rose to new life. This is talking about the new birth. And so who is this passage really talking about? Verse 14 is saying that Jesus died for all those who are going to be born again. All those who are or will be born again, i.e. the elect. Verse 15, it says, he died and rose on their behalf. Whose behalf? On behalf of all those who are going to die and rise again in him. Verses 14 and 15 make very clear that everyone Jesus died for, they will die to sin. They will rise to new life. It's the very definition of a definite atonement, a particular redemption. That all those for whom Jesus died, they're going to be saved. It's just a matter of time, but they will rise to new life. They will die to sin. They will rise to new life. Because his atonement actually atoned. It actually redeemed. 
didn't just make savable, but it effectively secured the salvation of those who will believe. All he died for will come to this new life. This is an effective atonement. And so it's not hard to see. And when you just study the context, the passage has really the exact opposite meaning that the Arminian takes. They read the passage on the surface. They see the phrase, Jesus died for all. Okay. And they assume this means all people without exception. But the context must clarify, and it clarifies rather clearly, that this passage means all of God's people. He's talking about the the church, those who will believe, the elect. And so it says Jesus died for all of them. And they will believe, they will rise to new life. All who are born again. Hence, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. This, this, this redemption is for those in Christ. And also verse 18 says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is what God was doing through the cross of Christ. He was reconciling us to himself, believers, the church, those who will be born again. And now we have the ministry of reconciliation whereby we announce God's plan of reconciliation to the world through Christ. And that's verse 19, which says, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. And here's another phrase, God reconciling the world to himself. God's plan was for the world, but again, this cannot mean all people without exception. Because then, this verse would be saying that in Christ, God was not counting the trespasses of everyone against them. This would be teaching universal forgiveness, that Jesus died, therefore everyone was forgiven. We know that's not the case. That would be universal redemption. Rather, this is all people without distinction, which really fits the Great Commission. That's our whole ministry. We are to take the good news of Christ's reconciling death into all the world, into all the nations, to all people without distinction. Jews, Gentiles, we make no distinction. We, don't, we have no prejudice. We're going to take the gospel into all the world as ambassadors, all people without distinction. And that is for whom Christ died, all people without distinction, but not without exception. Because we know that God will save some from every tribe and tongue. That's what makes our evangelism effective. God has chosen some that will receive and will believe. God sovereignly works through us. And verse 20 teaches he uses us as the means of this reconciliation. But long story short, you're looking at this passage. It has a lot to do with the atonement, Christ's death. On the cross, those for whom he died, on whose behalf. And this passage makes clear that it's talking about us, that he died for us, he died for the church, those who are or will be born again. And all those for whom he died, the all, they will live, they will believe. And that's not everybody, that's the church, that's God's people. This is actually a very strong passage on an effective atonement, that because he died for these people, they will, they will die to sin and they will rise to new life. Because he died for them, they will live. And this is an actual atonement. It actually saves those for whom it was intended 
We know that's not everybody. That's the elect. Now let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're just going to go verse by verse like last time, although I added a few extra verses now because we had a little extra time, but we've got to keep pace. So 1 Timothy chapter 2. Here's another familiar verse and a verse that comes up often in this discussion, 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'll read verses 3 through 6 as you make your way there. 1 Timothy 2, verse 3 says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Now, a couple of phrases here. Verse 4, God desires all to be saved. Verse 6, Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. And so here, Armenians would once again argue that, look, you've got this universal language. It proves universal atonement or unlimited atonement. But God desires all people to be saved, right? Because he loves all in the same way. And Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all to make them savable. And so they just all means all people without exception. That's what they would say. Now, it's one thing to state that. It's one thing to assert that. It's another thing to prove that from the context. And I would argue to the contrary, there's enough in the context to take us in the other direction. That all is, once again, all without distinction, not all without exception. This is, you're going to hear that over and over again. That's just, that's the debate. The issue in this passage really, it comes up, it comes again to this issue of an actual or a potential atonement. On the cross, was Jesus making actual atonement for sins or a potential, provisional atonement for sins? Remember all that? Here we have the word ransom. Did Jesus truly ransom every single person, without exception, every person ever born on the cross? That's what they have to say. It's all people without exception. So verse 6, he ransomed all people ever born. Is that, is that the case? If so, that's going to have serious implications. Remember, back lesson 17, we studied the terms of the atonement, all the words of the atonement in Scripture. And if Jesus, and ransom is one of those words, agorazo and the, and the words related to it. If Jesus ransoms someone, what does that really mean? It means he purchased their freedom from the slave market of sin, and he made them his own slave. He bought them. We are slaves to Christ now, Scripture teaches. We've been purchased, made Christ's possession. So Christ's ransom, it's an effective rescue from sin and from death. And there's just no concept of a ransomed person, someone who's been bought by Christ, they've been ransomed, yet they're lost forever and they go to hell. There's no concept of that in Scripture. A person who's been ransomed by Christ, yet they're not saved in the end. There's no category for that in the New Testament. And because of what ransom means, unless you take this ransom terminology and you rob it of its meaning, and it just means, you know, he potentially ransoms them. Unless you do that, and that's what they do, Christ giving himself as a ransom for all 
It can't mean all without exception. It must mean all without distinction. All types of people. The same thing goes with this verse 4. God desires all to be saved. Now look, in one sense, there's no problem with saying that, right? Does God, in his revealed will, does he desire all to be saved? Of course. Does he desire that no one sins? Of course. His revealed will is, is broken all the time, though. We sin. We, we do wrong. But that being said, even here in verse 4, it's best to take this as meaning all without distinction. That God desires all types of people to be saved without distinction. Look back at verse 1. You have the same phrase, all men, used in verse 1. And there, it doesn't mean all without exception. It means all without distinction. He says, verse 1, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. The phrase all men in verse 1, it doesn't mean all without exception. It's not possible for us to pray for every person never born. It clearly means all types of people. All categories of people. Verse 2, verse two he, he lists a few categories. He, who are these all men? Well, he says, you know, for kings and, and all in authority. He's already listing a few categories of people. This is all types of people. It's all men without distinction. There's no one we're not going to pray for. And really, this further fits the context of 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy, Paul is dealing with Jewish elitist False teachers. False teachers who, you know, the Judaizers, you may have heard of them. The, you have to be among the Jews, the chosen race, and so forth. And to counter this teaching, in First Timothy especially, the church in Ephesus there, he takes a very universal tone in his language, showing that, look, God's, God's salvation in Christ, his plan of redemption, is for all men, meaning not just Jews. It's for all without distinction, Jews, Gentiles, all the nations, Men and women, slave and free, rich and poor. What God is doing in Christ is for all men. He's not meaning everyone ever born in that regard. It's just the point he's making is simple. It's just it's for all without distinction. All the nations are included in this plan. That's it. It's all without distinction. True salvation is not for Jews only, but for all sorts of people. It makes sense even in verse 7 where he reminds them that he's a teacher of the Gentiles. That even Paul, this great apostle, is not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. God's plan of salvation is for all men without distinction. Now this passage, it's a good example of the language trade-off interpreters must make. Because like I said before, everybody limits the atonement. Remember that? I keep saying that. Everybody limits the atonement one way or another. Arminians, they want to make the atonement universal, meaning it applies to everybody. To get that, they have to limit the power of the atonement. They have to limit the efficacy of the atonement. They have to limit what the atonement actually does. It doesn't actually ransom everybody. It potentially ransoms everybody. So they're limiting its power. And, and to do so, they have to take that word ransom and all the other atonement terms and really empty them of their real meaning. But the Calvinists, however, would rather maintain the atonement language to its fullest. Ransom means ransom. An actual ransom for, for sin. An actual purchase was made on the cross. The Calvinist is going to take the atonement language to its fullest. 
And thereby, the Calvinist is going to limit the references to all men. Uh, In this case, though, not only does the context allow for that, I would even say the context argues for that. That when it says all men and all people here, it just simply means all without distinction. It's as simple as that, that Christ did ransom all types of people. I keep pointing you back to Roman, uh, Revelation 5.9. That he purchased, there's a big, it's a very similar term to ransom by the way. He purchased for God with his blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He purchased people from every tribe. He didn't purchase every tribe and tongue. He purchased men from every tribe and tongue. It's a particular redemption. It's Revelation 5.9 by the way. We've seen that lots. Now just flip the page to 1 Timothy 4.10. Here's another one we'll try and do. And pick up the pace a little bit. 1 Timothy 4.10. Here's another one in 1 Timothy. Uh, Like I told you, Paul has quite the universal tone in 1 Timothy. It makes sense. He's countering these Jewish elitist false teachers. Here again, he says verse 10. He says, "For For this we labor and strive Because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. You're saying he's the Savior of all men, especially of believers. So what does it mean to say that God is the Savior of all men? Now first note, this verse is not even talking about Jesus. This is talking about God the Father. God the Father is the Savior of all men. Who's the antecedent of the word Savior? Well, it's the living God. This is God the Father. Not to saying that Christ is not the Savior. We know both certainly are. But this verse is saying God the Father is the Savior of all men. And that being said, everybody agrees this is not universalism. Meaning, when it says God is the Savior of all men, not all men are saved. Okay, we all agree with that. That's clear. So what does this mean? Well, this is a, a good example where you ha- this is a, you know it's a good verse of the Bible. This is a perfect example where you have a verse that honestly doesn't really contribute much to this whole debate. And, and here's why: this verse is sufficiently vague that both sides, the Calvinist and the Arminian, they're simply going to come to a verse like this and interpret it according to their their theological beliefs and, and presuppositions. Which, with a verse like this, it's fair game. We believe in a a principle called Scripture interprets Scripture. And that's that's what both sides are going to apply here. Uh, It just means a a verse like this that, honestly, the context doesn't tell us a whole lot. It's vague enough that both sides can simply make their case here. So, for example, the Arminian will approach this verse. And they will infer from it that Jesus died for all. Why? Because, you know, God is the Savior of all men. And so he sent Jesus to make salvation possible for everybody. And so they will infer here that that Jesus died for all because God is the Savior of all. He's he's the potential Savior of all. He made an attempt to save all people in Christ. They're just going to read that, and and it's vague enough they, they can do so. The Calvinist, however, will take this as a simple reference to God's common grace. The word Savior, soter in the Greek, it's a common word. It just means deliverer preserver, one who saves from danger. And in a temporal sense, God is the Savior of of all people, and that he preserves all and delivers all from immediate judgment. 
That he doesn't execute people the, the second they're born. He, he delivers people to life. Also all receive a measure of common grace where they inherit many temporal blessings in this life, none of which are deserved. And so God is the, the soter, the, the savior, the deliverer of all people in, in a temporal sense. But in a spiritual or eternal sense, he's the savior of believers only. Which is why Paul himself makes a distinction in this passage, right? That, that God is the, the savior. He's the deliverer of believers in a special way. That God saves believers in some way. He doesn't save unbelievers. And the Calvinists would simply make this distinction between common grace and saving grace. Long story short, though, with a verse like this. This verse, it just hinges on one word, and that's Savior. And the context is vague enough where, where both sides can interpret it in a consistent manner. And so really, it, this verse doesn't really push the needle toward either side of this debate. I just include it because it comes up so much and a lot of people ask about it. And so I figured I'd just lay it out there. It's perfectly acceptable, though, to see God as, as the, the temporal deliverer or savior of all men. But that does not lead to a universal atonement. Now, the next verse is quite clear, though. Uh, Titus 2.11, just flip over one, one book or two books. First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus, Titus two eleven. You have a passage speaking of God, our Savior, again, uh, similar in that regard. Titus two eleven. It says, "For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men." The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. I know I'm going to sound like a broken record, but it just keeps going. The Arminian will read this on the surface, like, oh, their God is just, here it is. He's, he's offering it to all men. He, he made it on behalf of all men without exception. The Calvinists would argue this is all men without distinction. Not without exception, without distinction. And that the context here is just is so clear. Hopefully you'll see what this means. In chapter 2, of Titus, what is Paul doing? He's dealing with the churches in Crete, and he's he's giving instructions for different categories of people. And so, in chapter two, he's lifting off, listing off different classes or categories of people, from older men to older women to younger women to younger men to slaves to masters, all types of people. It's not all people without exception. He's talking about all categories of people, all, all manner of people. And so when you get down to, to verse 11, bringing salvation to all men, it's just fitting the context. He's just talking about all types of people, all without distinction. And, and so it goes throughout all, so many verses that we've seen so far. The, the language can take you there. But on top of that, you know, in this whole passage, look down at verse 14. This is an atonement passage, right? Talking about Christ, at the end of verse 13, now in verse 14, who gave himself, Christ, he gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. You know, if in this, in this little passage, if Paul in verse 11 is talking about all people ever born, there's a perfect place to talk about Jesus giving himself to redeem everyone ever born and to purify everyone ever born, but he doesn't. 
It's always us. He gave himself. It's atonement language. The giving of himself for us. He's redeeming us. And he's purifying for himself a people. There's the, the same definite language that we've seen. Remember John 6, John 10, and, and, and 11 really. This, he's dying for the sheep. He's laying down his life for the sheep. He's the, he's the husband come to, to lay down his life. Not for all women. For the bride. He didn't give himself to save all women, just his bride, and so forth. It's, you get verses like this of particular redemption over and over again, and only further adding that, yeah, the grace of God has appeared, and it's brought salvation to all men without distinction. Right? And it's the Great Commission, all without distinction. But it, it doesn't argue for all without exception. All right, a couple more here, Hebrews chapter 2. I think we'll make it just in time now. Hebrews chapter 2. Continue to go through. These are like the top verses uh, that that are used, that keep coming up in this whole debate between limited atonement and unlimited atonement. And I'm really picking on the verses that Arminians will use themselves as their their proof texts. And when you actually study them, they have this seemingly universal language but like i said you look at the context and you find it's actually rather limited to to god's people time and time and time again here's here's another one hebrews 2 9 it says but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels namely jesus because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of god he might taste death for everyone, or for all. Your transition might say, for all. So here's a, another big proof text. Jesus, he tasted death for all, or for everyone. Okay, well, what does that mean? Who, who's this talking about? The question is, who is this, who is everyone here? Who, who is this all referring to? We've said many times, right? Words have ranges of meaning. All can refer to all people without exception. It can refer to all without distinction. It can be a subset. It could be all of us, right? So who, it's fair to ask, who is, who's the all? Who's the everyone here? For whom did Jesus taste death? Well, in this passage, the author of Hebrews, he goes on, and in the rest of the passage, he continues to talk about this same group of people. So as we keep reading the passage, we find it, it comes into focus Who's he talking about? Who's the subject, or rather the object, of, of those for whom Jesus tasted death? Who did he do it for? Who, who's this everyone that he tasted death for? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 10. It says, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings, for both he who sanctifies and those who who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. Notice this, talking about the same group of people, these are the same people for whom Jesus tasted death. But now they're referred to as sons, as brethren. They're those who will be sanctified next to Christ. These people for whom Jesus tasted death, they're, they're children of God, they're sons of God. They're referred to as brethren with Jesus. They follow after him. They're sanctified. These are the ones that have been set apart 
by God. That's what the word sanctified means. You keep reading verses 13 through 16. He calls them now children of God. And Jesus came to be like them, to redeem them, and to conquer Satan on their behalf. So everyone Jesus tasted death for, that this group, whoever it is, it's the same group he conquered Satan for. It's the same group he redeemed. But notice verse 16. This is pretty interesting. He says, verse 16, For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. You know what makes that verse so interesting? What is it? Anyone know? Not angels. Abraham. It's, it's what he, he, he doesn't say Adam. Why does he say Abraham and not Adam? Think about that. He's giving help to the descendants of Abraham, not Adam. He's giving help to, who's Abraham's descendants? Paul made this clear, right? There's the physical seed, that's Israel. The spiritual descendants of Abraham, that's just all believers. That's the elect, God's people. And this verse is actually clearly teaching he came to give help, obviously a euphemism for dying and everything he did. Who's he doing this for? The end of the passage makes crystal clear. It doesn't say the descendants of Adam. That would be everyone ever born. But he says the descendants of Abraham, that's clearly the elect. This is the church, this is believers, God's people. This is who he came for. This is who he tasted death for. This is who he redeemed. This is who he conquered Satan for. Those are all atonement terms, by the way. And so this is simply another example of a, a very strong passage, an often quoted passage by Arminians that, oh, this is clearly unlimited atonement. He tasted death for everyone. They leave it at that without continuing to read and study the passage in its context. And as you do so, it's rather strong in its favor of a definite atonement that he actually, no, he was coming and dying for all of us. The word everyone or all, it's just pos in the Greek, it's just a word for all. And and the context limits that to be all of us. It's all of the sons of God. It's all of God's people. It's all of the children. It's all of the set-apart ones. That's for whom he tasted death. And the context makes that very clear. He came and died to redeem, not the descendants of Adam. That would be everybody ever born. Read verse 16 for yourself. It looks pretty clear to me. It's the descendants of Abraham. That's God's chosen people. And time and time again, every verse you look at, one after another, they, they flip. And, hey, maybe on the surface it might seem like this is universal. But do some actual Bible study, read it in the context. You do it yourself. Don't take my word for it. And you'll find it's actually quite particular in its redemption. Uh, redemption. Let's do one more here, Second Peter 3.9. We'll uh, finish with this, 2 Peter 3.9. Another big one. We'll save a big one for the end, although they all have been pretty big. Flip over to 2 Peter chapter 3. Here's a verse I'm sure you've heard and maybe wondered about. What does this mean? 2 Peter 3.9. It says, The Lord... Is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. 
It's a good place to end because you have a very common verse, a big verse, that's thrown around all the time, quite carelessly in this debate, but it's almost always taken out of context. Almost always. And upon examination, this is going to be another passage that's going to uphold a definite atonement. Arminians, they quote this verse as further support, and they just say, look, it says, God doesn't want anyone to perish. He desires all people to come to repentance. And so it stands to reason, because he loves everyone in the same way, and he desires everyone to be saved in the same way. Well, that of course, he sent Jesus to die for everyone in the same way. That's what they'll say, and they'll leave it at that. Case closed. Now, I'll mention two things. One, we've in the past made a distinction between the revealed will of God and, and the hidden will of God, right? And so, look, on the surface... When it comes to the revealed will of God, we have no problem saying God desires all people to be saved, just like he desires no one to sin, right? And his desire, his will is for no one to sin ever. Now, of course, that will is not going to be fulfilled. It's his moral will, his revealed will. It's what is right, but it's not his ultimate will. People sin, and that's part of God's ordained plan. And likewise is the fact that not all are saved, Rather, we contend that if it was God's ultimate will for all people to be saved, all people would be saved. You can't escape that without neutering God's power and saying he doesn't have the ability to save all people. No, we believe he does. And so we make that distinction. But that being said, that's really an aside. What does this verse actually say, though? Let's look at 2 Peter 3.9. Now, first, in general... What, who's the audience of Second Peter? You go back to chapter 1, verse 1. It's believers. That's kind of obvious. It's a letter of the Bible. Just making it clear, he's not talking to unbelievers. In this context, he's not addressing the world. He's not addressing the lost. He's addressing believers, the church. Okay, that's fine. That's, that's simple. Now, what's the context of chapter 3? Second Peter, chapter 3. Well, he's talking about the coming day of the Lord. A day of judgment is coming. And it's a day parallel to the flood in which God will destroy the wicked. This time he's going to use fire. Look at verse 7. It says, But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. God has a judgment coming for ungodly men. Now, this day of wrath is coming, but... It's kind of taken a while. Like, what's the delay? Where is this day of wrath, this day of judgment? And even in Peter's own day, already there were mockers. People who slandered and maligned Christ and saying, yeah, okay, right. Where is this supposed day of judgment? It's not coming. How long has Christ been dead and gone? There's no judgment day. Even in Peter's own day, there were already mockers saying, this day of the Lord, it's not coming. Look back at verse 3. That's what he says. He says, Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So, you know, the, the whole question that he's posed, that he's going to answer, where is the promise of his coming, Christ's coming? And with his coming is judgment. 
And after this, he goes and talks about the flood. He's like, hey, it escapes their notice. I'm pretty sure once upon a time, God did pour out his wrath and judge the entire world. They kind of forgot about that, the flood. He's going to do it again with fire. That day is coming. It's still coming. That's what he's saying in this chapter, this day of the Lord. But now in verses 8 and 9, he circles back and he answers the question. Where is the promise of his coming and judgment? Where is it? Verses 8 and 9 are the answer. Verse 8, he says, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. Notice he's still talking to believers. Beloved. He says that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years like one day. He first reminds them that God has no problem waiting. God's not like us. He doesn't perceive time like us. God is, from God's perspective, he's not delaying at all. From God's perspective, this ain't taking a while. It's right on schedule. He has no trouble with this time block. This is his time scale. And, and to God, this is a, both a thousand years and a blink of an eye. He's a God who transcends time. And so he's first reminding us, like, you might think it's taking a while. To God, it's not. It's right on time. So you don't worry yourself about that. He's putting things in perspective with God and time. Okay, that's fine. Now look at verse 9. What's the explanation for, from our perspective, the delay? He says in verse 9, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So here he's explaining God's seeming delay in judgment. From our perspective, yeah, it is taking a while, but it's not because God is slow. Why is it taking a while? Why hasn't the day of judgment come? What's the explanation? Well, God's not being slow. He's being patient. The explanation is he's being patient. Why doesn't God instantly judge the world right now? The answer is his patience. God is waiting for something. What's he waiting for? No, in verse 9, though, what's the object of his patience? Verse 9. God is patient toward you. doesn't just say he's patient with the world. It says he's patient toward you. He's talking now to the church, to believers, to God's people. God is being patient with the elect. And God is delaying his wrath on earth because he's patient toward his people. To what end? Well, to the end that he's not wishing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance. And now this whole thing comes into focus. When verse 9 says, any, you know, any to perish, and all, all to come to repentance, what's the nearest antecedent to these words of any and all? It's the you in verse 9. And so verse 9 is saying, God is not wishing for any of you to perish. But he's patient so that all of you will come to repentance. This, this teaching, the teaching of this passage, it's quite clear. It's letting us know God has a plan both to save and to judge. Isn't that true throughout all scripture? He has a plan for this world. It includes salvation and judgment, does it not? And God, he will judge the world. He will destroy all the ungodly in a fiery judgment. You believe that? But not yet. Why not? Why not yet? Because he also has a plan to save some people. 
whom Scripture calls the elect. We've seen that so many times. And God, he chooses to patiently suffer mankind's sin and rebellion, not judging the earth. Why? Because he's patient. He's giving time. To what end? To allow his chosen ones to come to that faith, to repent, to believe, to be saved. Because if God ended the world in 2000, I would go to hell. I came to salvation in 2001, and well, I'm glad the world didn't end in 2000, because I would, I'd be gone, right? He has a plan for those whom he has chosen to save them, and until all the elect have come in, this, his plan continues. He will continue to not judge, to delay judgment. He has a plan to save, and so he patiently suffers man's sin, not judging, withholding the fire until that time. This passage, it actually only reinforces that God is working out a plan of salvation for, for you, for the elect, for the church, for his people. This is just like Christ taught himself. He's talking about a future time of tribulation, which is right before that, the day of the Lord. And he mentions how God was ordering the whole timetable of the tribulation on behalf of whom? The elect. Mark 13, 20. Jesus said, Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the elect, for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened those days. God is working out the, the timeline of our history for the sake of the elect. That's what his plan is for, his plan of salvation, rather. Paul taught the same thing in Romans. We, we learned this, right? This is Romans 9.22. It's the same thing as Romans 9.22, which says, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, he endured with patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. There's a lot we say before, just to summarize. God... He could have just poured out his wrath, even back with Adam and Eve. Just, okay, they fell, they ate the forbidden fruit, they're judged. They're, they're executed, they're judged right then and there. He could have done that. He would have been just, he would have been pure, holy, could have done that. But he chose to endure with patience these vessels of wrath, allow their sin to go unjudged for a time, and to continue, so that he might show mercy on Vessels of mercy that they would receive and inherit his glory. That they would be brought to salvation to his glory. This is God's plan. This is another passage where Arminians will quote it out of context in support as a proof text. But the context and language are actually quite clear. That this is an all-powerful God and he's working to save and to judge. And when it comes to salvation... He has a bride, a body, a people, a flock that he's working to save. And human history, that, that plan is being worked out. And when that, when that body is complete, then the end will come. That's what Second Peter 3.9 is teaching. And at the end of the day, we have to always say, upholding God's power, if he truly willed for all people to be saved, all people would be saved. You cannot escape that fact. Now at this point we keep going. There's more verses, but I think this will suffice for now. 
They all they end the same way. You go through them one by one, study each passage in its context, and you actually find no examples of a truly universal language used in connection with the atonement. There's no clear examples of Jesus dying for all people without exception. Instead, every passage can be understood. Either Jesus dying as all, for all people without distinction, or Jesus dying for all people with exception. And many passages straight up t- tell us that he died just for his people. A very definite redemption. And at the end of the day, this is where uh, the Calvinist will stake his claim. Namely that Jesus, he made an actual atonement. Not a potential atonement, but an actual atonement. Just the language of scripture. When you say Jesus died for someone, you have to define. What do you mean by died for? What does that actually mean? He died for someone. And again, going back to lesson 17, we did this whole study. It means he was their substitute sacrifice. It means he redeemed them. He reconciled them, ransomed them, made propitiation for them, and conquered Satan for them. That's what it means when you say he died for someone. And so on whose behalf did he really do all of this? On whose behalf did he turn away the wrath of God, reconcile to God, redeem from the curse of the law, deliver from the power and guilt of sin? And the answer we've seen over and over again is is his people, the church, the elect. He did not potentially ransom us or potentially die on our behalf. He did not make potential propitiation for our sins. He didn't potentially conquer Satan on our behalf, but actually did all of these things for his people. And I would say the burden of proof is really on the Arminian to demonstrate that the atonement can be understood in these provisional terms, these potential terms. Only then can you apply this atonement to all people without exception. But I've never seen that proof. And to the contrary, we've seen just the opposite, that Jesus didn't die to make his people savable, but to actually save. You know, we mentioned Adam. Speaking of Adam, just as the sin of Adam did not make condemnation of all people merely possible, but rather it was the ground of their actual condemnation... Likewise, the forgiveness and the righteousness Jesus procured on the cross, it didn't make people merely savable. It was the ground of their actual salvation. Jesus was fully undoing the effects of sin on the cross, and all for whom it was intended, they will be saved. They will be secured by him. They will be preserved. They will be made alive. They will inherit the life that he purchased for them by dying and and rising again. This definite atonement shows both the real love of God and the real power of God to save a bride forever. This is the heart of the issue. Is the atonement actual or not? And that the rest, to quite greatly simplify, it takes care of itself. Well, for all these reasons, this is why we are persuaded by a definite Atonement, a particular redemption. We did it. We finally finished. So that'll do it. It's a lot. It's been a whirlwind. This is a big and deep subject. I wanted to take some time. Hey, if this interests you, you can always go back and just kind of listen through the messages even a little more slowly and, and go do some of your own research. I would encourage you. But for now, we'll leave it at that and we'll move on. So we keep going. 
This really is the tail end now. There's just two more subjects, and they're not nearly as large. They're really just a couple weeks each on uh, irresistible grace and the perseverance of the saints coming up. And so we, we'll probably be done with this whole thing in you know, February into March, really. And so we're coming in the home stretch, pretty excited. Let me go ahead and pray, though, for our time tonight, and we'll be dismissed. Let's go ahead and pray. Our Lord in heaven, we, we praise you tonight for this study and just learning about your plan. You, you're, you're the all-powerful God who created the heavens and the earth, and we know you have a plan for this creation. It's a plan to save. It's also a plan to judge, for we have sinned. We've fallen short of your glory, and Lord, we know you would have been only just to only judge if all you did was judge this world and those who are in it. If you saved none, you would still be perfect perfectly righteous and just. You would show your holiness and wrath and would be glorified in yourself. We thank you, Lord, also, though, that you chose to save and to not only judge, but also to save by your mercy, by your grace, and none can thwart your will. And we've learned, Lord, it was your will to save some, to redeem some according to that hidden will, to pluck from the fire, to to redeem, to purchase, to, to free. And to create a body and a bride and a flock, a one people that Christ would inherit as his possession forever, that we would experience and, and show off your glory forever as the objects, the trophies of your grace. We've got to praise you for this plan, Lord. At the, at the very least, we can thank you that, that we've been included in it. This all is to your matchless glory. You're a supreme God. We don't ever want to diminish your love, or your power. And we don't want to diminish one to to save the other. You're an all-loving God, yet an all-powerful and all-just God, and we'll worship you for it for all. Just continue to unfold to us the atonement, redemption, salvation. We, We want to know these truths, that we might know you better and your plan, that we might live for you and glorify you as we as we rightly know you. So continue to bless us in our pursuit of understanding here to your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.